narcissistically abusive relationships, especially if they're romantic or familial, the more intimate they are, are brainwashing camps. It's a cult with two people inside of it. It's a cult of one, essentially, uh, one leader, one follower. He's a master practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming. He's a coach. He's an online expert on PTSD, healing trauma, and today's topic of narcissism. And he's known as YouTube's bad boy of psychology, or some have labelled him as such, I suppose, because of his no-nonsense approach to uh, a lot of the aspects of psychology. So we'll be talking about narcissism today with, I should actually introduce him by his name, it's Richard Grannon, who has a huge YouTube channel. Uh, He's got a huge following online. He's helped many, many people, and he wrote the book, Occult of one about the sort of narcissistic relationships and things that we get into. It's a cult of one, how to deprogram yourself from narcissistic abuse. So do get hold of that book if you're interested in what Richard has to say today. That was only out in 2022, just a few months ago. So it's a new book. People are loving it. It's got great reviews on Amazon. And go follow Richard. Subscribe to his channel, Richard Grannon, just his his name. Uh, We talk today about, you know, we start with what narcissism is we get into the ins and outs, how one becomes one. Is it entrenched in a person? Is it an immutable characteristic? And then we talk about uh, how it compares to psychopathy and how they combine. And then we get onto a few people. Well, yes, of course, we do touch on Tom Cruise for a couple of minutes, but we do have a big section on Meghan Markle. Is she a narcissist? What's going on there? And Jordan Peterson and his word salad stuff. I love that Richard gives a really balanced and nuanced view of Jordan Peterson, really likes his psychology, but uh, there are places where Jordan uh, goes wrong, I think. And Richard really... uh, gets that right and talks about Jordan Peterson's mental health and actually reveals a few things that I think are not really known to the public about Jordan's struggle with certain mental health issues. All sorts of big episodes are coming up. We've got stuff with, for example, Professor Wilfred Riley on the Culture Wars. We've got Helen Lewis coming on. She's quite a big name in the UK. Jason Flom to talk about wrongful convictions and Emma Thorne about atheism. But now you're on the edge of narcissism, Meghan Markle and Jordan Peterson with Richard Grannon. Richard, how are you doing? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I am very well, too. Good to have you on. I've, I love your channel. I've been looking around. We're going to be talking about narcissism and stuff. Do you, do you mind going through the basics? I mean, what, what? I know it seems obvious to a lot, of, but maybe it isn't obvious. What is narcissism? Um, well, narcissistic personality disorder is usually identified by somebody who is very, very attached to a false sense of self. Um, and through that false self, that delusional view of themselves as as grandiose and all important and all powerful, they filter reality. So they're not very good at taking on external reality. They filter it through this uh, delusional, uh, false sense of self. So it's typified by, by envy, bullying, um, exploitativeness, um, a strong sense of entitlement, a deep sense of attachment to that false sense of self. So that if you attack it or say you're not as amazing as you think you are, you'll usually experience what we call narcissistic rage. And so does that mean that these people don't necessarily realize they're doing bad things when they do bad things? It's, it sounds like from what you've said that they uh, they feel like they've been badly treated and they've been given dealt a, a rough hand. 
It's an interesting question. It's at the core of, of psychology. It's like a philosophical question. Um, if somebody is mentally ill, are they alleviated from any sort of moral uh, duty? Um, obviously, there are times within the legal system, if you can prove that you've become clinically insane for a temporary period of time, you can get a different sentence or a shorter sentence. Um, I believe that they know the difference between right and wrong. I believe that this factors in strongly with psychopathy. They know what is right. They know what is wrong. They simply do not care. So I'm not in the camp of saying uh, that this is all moral relativism, that they're victims and that therefore that they should be absolved. I think everybody suffers trauma and we all have a choice for how we deal with that. But we definitely have. I mean, I know just from myself, I've, I've been to uh, therapy over the years, not, not, not a lot, but, you know, I lived in Argentina where they have the most therapy per capita in the world. So it was like you have to, it was like getting a cup of tea out there, you go and get a therapy session. And it definitely changed my perspective on times where I thought that maybe someone hadn't been good to me. And I thought, oh, well, actually, maybe that was my fault. And I was able to sort of look in, was that sort of changed? So maybe, I guess what I'm angling at here is, can narcissists change? Can they start to see things, like reframe things? Um, narcissistic personality disorder would, so this, the, the, the opinions differ on this. I'm in the camp that says if it's full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, then that's, in order to identify that as being that, then there has to be no capacity for change. It's extraordinarily rigid. So the uh, ability for them to deflect reality from entering into their space is really, really strong. It's really, really high and they can keep reality at bay. There is narcissism that exists on a spectrum though. And at the lower end of the spectrum where you just have a highly narcissistic style or what some people call low grade narcissism. Yes, there could be some change that can be affected over time. There'll be, you can teach people to change the way they act. Uh -huh. And maybe the, I, I just think the way they frame, I guess if you're always thinking, oh God, they're always doing that to me, everyone's doing bad things to me. And if you, cause I'm thinking of particular narcissists I know in my life, that's why I'm asking you. Cause I'm thinking, what can I, what can I do to maybe help them reframe things? Is there much you can do? Um, I think like you can attempt to feed back to them what's happening and then gauge how receptive they are to that feedback. If they're not receptive to it at all then really what can any of us do within the boundaries of the law? I mean, you could kidnap them and then stick them in a brainwashing camp and feed them psychedelics and, um, you know, <laughs> we train them to, to think in a, in a different way, but outside of doing that through adult to adult consensual conversation, no, there's, there's very, very little hope. Was there, was there something that happened perhaps in your life? What sparked your interest in, in narcissism and uh, leading to your quite wonderful and popular channel? Um, I think uh, I was raised in a highly narcissistic environment. Um, I would think that my parents would be on the uh, spectrum for narcissism as well as borderline and, and psychopathy. Um, so I was raised in a very unstable environment. So I've always had a, a lifelong interest in, in mental health. And then as I got into adulthood, I was examining some of my relationships and I could see, um, I think out of two of, of 12 relationships, there was a very, very high degree of, um, narcissistic style there to say the least. Do you think that is, is there, and not in a victim blaming way, but is there something that some of us do to attract or to search for narcissists? I'm not one of those mental health people that jumps up and down in the politically correct way about victim blaming. I, I, I don't, I don't like the way that any 
any emphasis of putting responsibility back on the other person is just written up as, as victim blame. Victim blaming is like, um, it's like code words. Obviously victim blaming exists, but you know, to say, Hey, uh, did you maybe have some semblance of, of an impact on this relationship between two adults? I don't consider that victim blaming. No, I think, um, it's a perfectly reasonable question and any responsible adult should welcome that question. Um, and not write it off as, as some sort of, I don't know, microaggression or right. offense, um, or victim blaming. Um, no, of course we have a responsibility unless you were dragged into the relationship at gunpoint, but that's psychopathic abuse. That's where the law has been transgressed. That's, uh, the kind of thing serial killers do. Um, and this is not, uh, it requires our consent. And then when we say, even after we've realized the relationship is abusive, we ask us the question, well, why, why did I stay? What was causing me to stay there? Hmm. And what kinds of things, is it sort of people pleasers and that kind of person? Um, I, I, I think, I think the human mind will look for uh, simple solutions to, to quite complicated questions. And we have two hands, we have two halves, of the brain and two eyes. So we like to create dichotomies and binaries. Um, so that there, there is like this tendency to go, oh, there's a narcissist and there's a dependent or a people pleaser or, or whatever. I think sometimes it's an individual thing. I think individually, yes, sometimes like people like myself definitely have a pronounced, um, people pleaser tendency because of the environment that I was raised in, that was a survival mechanism for me. And for other people, they're just entrained through the relationship itself. They had no pre-existing problem. But the relationship itself entrained them to behave in a new way and to react and feel in new ways. Narcissistically abusive relationships, uh, especially if they're romantic or familial, the more intimate they are, are brainwashing camps. It's a cult with two people inside of it. It's a cult of one, essentially, uh, one leader, one follower, and you are brainwashed. You are brainwashed inside that camp. So. That brainwashing can lead to people pleasing tendencies, even if those aren't there before. And then I'm just thinking as well, uh, and I'm just thinking out loud here because I don't know anything about this. But do people sometimes, if they've got a narcissistic parent, do they then seek out a partner that mimics that relationship sometimes, as if almost if, like this time I can get it right, that kind of thing? Yes, um, that was something that Freud identified as as repetition oh. compulsion. So. The pain, yes, you're just like Freud. I'm just thinking that. <laughs> you'd be glad, you'd be glad to know. Um, so yeah. he, he, he would have said, uh, yeah, repetition compulsion. You're trying to resolve something in childhood that you failed to resolve in adulthood. And you're doing it compulsively. You're doing it unconsciously and obsessively, desperately seeking for that release from the, the trauma bind from, from childhood. Can be that. It can be that we were raised in environments that were abusive and tyrannical dictatorial and so abusive tyrannical dictatorial environments feel like home to us they feel comfortable to us something that is egalitarian adult um and and honest and, and requires consent would feel uncomfortable would feel alien and strange and so we would move away from it if we were raised in those kinds of environments and where do you stand on freud because again i don't know much about psychology but obviously it, it was sort of very in vogue not long ago to you know Freud this, Freud that, and now it seems to be always discredited. And, but what you just explained, which was my own theory, you know, parroted back at me, I suppose, in a sense, uh, I suppose 
it makes sense to me. And then, of course, it does because that's what I just said. But it makes sense, right? I don't know. Yeah, I think I think if you look, I mean, um, Jung, Freud, Adler. Freud was a complicated man, and and there was probably too much wholehearted acceptance for the things he said originally. He really is the grandfather of psychology, not just the grandfather of psychoanalysis. And then around the seventies. I don't think it was her fault, but I think it was a sign of the times. Uh, a journalist who was a radical feminist came up with a conspiracy theory um, about Freud that's been widely circulated and widely accepted since that he was essentially victim blaming uh, the experiences of his female patients who'd been abused in childhood. It's not tr- true. The radical feminist journalist, not a psychologist, a journalist got it wrong got it totally wrong or she willfully got it wrong. But the moment was, you know, screw this old white gentleman guy with a cigar in his beard who never smiles. He's not like Jung, who's always pictured smiling. And Adler was a friendly socialist. Uh, Freud, Freud was much more paternal and it was an anti-patriarchal moment. So this meme of saying, screw you to Freud, spread like wildfire. So to this day, yes, in university, when I was at university, if you said Freud, people laughed at you. Wow. That's fascinating. Freud was cancelled. He was a genius. He cancelled, yeah, he'd been cancelled. Cancel culture got Freud. I can't believe that. Wow, what a what a what a shame, I suppose. Well, I quite like that sort of concept that we're always trying to sort of rectify things. You, you mentioned the cult of one before, sort of being with a narcissist. What about cults in general? Um, I gather psychopaths, for example, there's like 1% in society, but probably 2 or 3% it's CEOs and maybe cult leaders and stuff. Might that also um, relate to, to narcissists? Might there be sort of cult leaders who are narcissists and things? Narcissists uh, and psychopaths are frequently comorbid. Um, so I, th- I believe narcissistic personality disorder of all the personality disorders is most often comorbid, which means it, it shows up with other personality disorders, or in other words, it's very rare for somebody to be just narcissistic personality disorder. So one of the things that they're frequently comorbid with, diagnosed with is psychopathy. So narcissistic psychopaths are going to look for environments that affirm rather than challenge their, um, delusional self-image, which is the delusional self-image is I'm amazing, I'm wonderful, and I deserve special treatment. So they will either seek to become leaders uh, legitimately as, you know, CEOs or put themselves in positions of power, or yes, they will actually seek to run cults. People who are running cults are probably at the more psychopathic end of the spectrum and less pro-social. Uh, the more pro-social they are, you're probably looking at somebody who's on that spectrum of psychopathy to narcissism is more of a narcissist. It's interesting because I always look at those leaders and think that they, sometimes they seem to be true believers, you know, in whatever they're preaching. Uh, and I guess we like to think of like the good guys and the bad guys, but maybe they think they're good guys. I guess, I guess I don't know what my question is because, because you can't possibly answer it without speculating, but, but I mean, to, to, to what extent to what extent are cult leaders really thinking that they're doing good? And can that still mean that they are, you know, a psychopathic narcissist? Um, I think once you've entered the realm and you're looking at the subjective reality of a narcissist psychopath, 
these questions about good and bad, they, they don't really make that much sense there. You know, it's like taking a psychedelic and entering a hellscape inside of that subjective reality. There is only exploitation. There is only power. There is only control. The concept of good and bad is like an alien language that they have to learn to speak to dominate, colonize, and exploit the aliens that they're there to exploit. We are aliens to them. We are things to them. So good and bad is not, is not something they're going to lie awake at night thinking about. Power or not power is, is something they would lie awake at night thinking about. Interesting. Because I, I thought that was psychopaths. But, but just narcissists, like not psychopathic narcissists, I would have imagined, and again, I know, I'm coming from a place of knowing nothing, that they would be like, oh God, the world's against me and, and everyone else is doing bad to me, but, but am, am I doing wrong? Would, or would they, but, but you're saying that's not the case. They're not wondering if they're doing wrong. Not particularly until you start to look at another potential model, which will be fragile or vulnerable narcissism, where because that's driven by a strong sense of guilt and shame, so in view of that, this is, this is a model that's questioned, um, by some er areas of psychology, fragile or covert narcissism or vulnerable narcissism would be triggered by their own grandiosity. So let's say I imagine that I deserve special treatment, but the world largely doesn't confirm that. They just think I'm an idiot and, and I'm a loser. I'm not getting the feedback that I'm as wonderful as my false self is telling me that I am. So I'm constantly triggered by my own grandiosity and the feedback from the world into feelings of failure and guilt and shame. They may be more prone through trying to roll through those feelings of guilt and shame to consider, am I doing good? Am I doing bad? But I would still claim that that filter of good, like we'd have to help against philosophical question. What does good mean? So good to you might mean really serves people and is, is good for the social environment. Good to them might be it, everybody is praising me for serving people and praising me for being good to the social environment. Do you see the difference? Yeah, yeah. Do we not? I said a lot of words there. Of I'm not. I'm not sure if that made sense. <laughs> no, it made it made total sense. It's like good, good to be praised uh, and good to yes, yes, but not because you think you're doing good, right? But not really good. Not actually sure. authentically good. It's only good if I'm seen to be good. Yeah. But do we not all have a, I guess it must be on a spectrum to an extent because I've had that feeling when I've like given money to a charity or something, and then I'm desperate to tell people that I did it right deep down. I don't, obviously I'm slightly ashamed of that, but I don't mind admitting that to you. I want to tell people I've done it. So I must have some yeah. of that in me or am I now, am I a narcissist? No, I think, I think that, um, I'm pretty sure that there was, uh, either stories in in the Christian Bible, it was certainly stuff that I was taught growing up as a, as a Christian that, you know, the truly Christian thing to do is to help people without seeking recognition. But there are people, I'm sure it was a parable, but there are people who will only do it if they get recognition. There is latent narcissism in all of us. We are um, social creatures. We're tribal creatures. My sense of self is not individual. It's moderated by how the other members of my tribe view me. So the idea of doing good without receiving any social currency for that is not really written into the, the sort of the software of being a human being. So then you'd have the question like, where's the discrete boundary between the latent normal narcissism, healthy narcissism, the average human, um, and that of a malignant narcissistic psychopath. 
And it could be a question of degree. It could be a question like, you can admit it and have a sense of humor about it. And I'll be like, mate, you should do that anyway, you know, and you go, but yeah, I should. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. There's just no reason on earth why they would. So the rigidity would be the difference that makes the difference. If I said that to somebody who's an narcissistic psychopath, that's what the shoppers would come down and they'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. I won't give my money away without getting recognized for it. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I think we all know people like that. How common are they? Like, would we all have gone, had one or two mates in our school? group who were one of them and then they they changed the figures uh, where where psychologists get these i mean psychology is mm-hmm. you know tries to be scientific it's a soft science at best so they were saying it was one in a hundred and now some saying five percent and some saying 15 percent it depends on how you measure it i mean that's science isn't it like you, you know you make it you make it you make it claim about your data and I'm another scientist, I'd be like, can I see your work, please? I'd like to know how you came to that conclusion. So if we mean like a pronounced narcissistic and exploitative style, I would, I would agree with the people that say that, yes, it's a very high percentage of the population, 15, 20%. Actual malignant narcissistic psychopaths, narcissistic psychopaths, I think would be still quite a small number. I think it's probably like two or three out of a hundred. Well, social media. Modern media, modern culture encourages a narcissistic style. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we're going to see huge numbers of, of that number of that type of thing exploding. So yeah, I think that's very commonplace today. So that, that would suggest that it's not, you're not necessarily born a narcissist. I mean, you spoke of latent narcissism, uh, but, but the idea that our society is shaping narcissism. I mean, is that something that worries you? Um, very much, very, very much. I mean, I'm very concerned about the state of the world and the state of our so-called civilization now. Um, it could be because I'm a middle-aged man and I'm becoming curmudgeonly and I see the world as being on the road to ruin, or we could be going through a real phase of, of, of negative downward change. I don't know, but yes, it, it worries me very much. I am not a fan of the idea you were born this way. The reason why. I'm not is because it appeals to, um, a sort of a superstitious sense. Humans like these stories. They like, oh, you got that from your dad. You know, you got your green, your grandfather had green eyes and your grandmother was a horrible bitch. And that's why you, you know, steal money at work or whatever you did. So uh, I, we liked that and we're superstitious in that way, but that's not good enough. There isn't really hard evidence yet 
to suggest that there is a genetic component. And anyway, we live in the age of epigenetics, which means that your environment affects the expression of different genes. So it becomes a moot point. Like if you were raised in an abusive environment, did that cause at an epigenetic level, the expression of different genes that made you less empathic and more confrontational, more exploitative, entirely possible. So yeah, I don't, I, I would encourage people to stay away from the, the just so version of things like, yes, he was born a psychopath or she was born a narcissist. It's, it's probably both. It's probably nature and nurture. It's the environment and, and what you're born with. And what is it about society that is encouraging narcissism? How long have you got? Um, brief, briefly, we, we probably somewhere along the line as a, as a society, whatever that means, or, or as a culture, or as a people, I mean, but this is a global phenomenon now, we kind of sold our soul a little bit. We lost religion. We embraced scientific materialism. Fine. You know, that's, that seemed like progress. I understand that, but I think unhindered the, um, sort of the very Western mechanistic materialistic view of reality brought about an acceleration of consumer capitalism, which means that people were encouraged to buy goods, not that they needed, but that they wanted. And we could thank Edward uh, Bernays, Freud's nephew, um, for the propagation of that, of that problem. He created, uh, marketing, modern marketing, as we understand it, in fact, is created by Sigmund Freud's nephew using his uncle's principles of the unconscious. And he's a very good job and he made an awful lot of money. But with consumer capitalism, we're all pushed into a modality that makes narcissism and psychopathy a more logical way of conducting yourself in the world. So if you're a materialist, a, a, a mechanical materialist, you believe that this flesh suit is going to be healthy for like 65 years and dead after 85 years. It only makes sense that you should experience as much pleasure and power as you can in the limited period of time you have. That's consumerism. So drink more, eat more, snort more coke, have sex with more people. It creates an, a very vulgar and brutalizing cultural milieu that we have to swim through. And as we're swimming through it, we all become more vulgar. We all become more brutal in order to survive in what is effectively in my eyes becoming a prison planet. It's the planet itself is beautiful. We have everything we need here, but we swallowed a nightmare pill and we're turning it into a, a real horror show. Is that, I'm just trying to think of like the sort of tribe dynamics. I don't know if maybe I'm reading too much into that stuff. Uh, evolutionarily, you're in a tribe and I suppose you've got to get that balance right between doing what's right for you to survive long enough to pass on your genes. So you've got to be selfish in that respect and also what's, what's good for the tribe. And so, so I guess this, this, when we become narcissistic, is it just tilting a little bit too far that way? Well, when we, when we were living as hunter gatherers, the thing that would have held, I mean, there was some chance for capitalism, never mind consumer capitalism because capitalist stuff. And if you're running in fear of your life or running to find shelter all the time, what can you hold in your hands? Like a spear, your favorite cloak your father's thigh bone or whatever, whatever like they were carrying around. And, Christ. you know, you just couldn't, capitalism wasn't, wasn't a, an option. Consumer capitalism was millennia away. Consumer capitalism has been around to the flash of an eye as capitalism has. I'm not a Marxist, but Marx identified something that he called their uh, primitive or tribal communism, which is what you're talking about, which is 
say if we lived in a, in a hunter-gatherer tribe, you and I and 28 other people fighting for survival every day, of course I'm going to feed you if I can. Of course we share the tools, because if we don't, we're all going to die. Like, there's, no, there's no options there. There's no like a cornucopia of choice that's going to spoil the human mind. Brett Weinstein uh, talks about this a lot on the Dark Horse podcast. We are not a good evolutionary match for these, for the environment that we created. We're a very poor evolutionary match. To, you asked about evolution. That, that, that was what made me think. Yeah, about. yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm really interested in that stuff. I get, I get really excited by, by all of it. Um, I mean, I mean, I suppose as well in the tribe, it, did it, did it make sense? Well, I, okay. I, I guess you're saying that there's not necessarily just a psychopathic gene or something. So I'm wondering if it made sense to have the odd psychopath in a tribe, I suppose in case you're warring against another tribe. Uh, yeah, you would, you would have had, I mean, it, psychopath and narcissist are, uh, these are culture bound definitions that they don't even make sense in modern Western culture. They don't make sense outside of our culture. It doesn't mean anything. Um, other than um, all, all psychological diagnoses are. There are plenty of cultures where you could talk to the spirits, talk to the rain gods, you know, believe that you changed into an eagle and had a vision of the future of the tribe. That wasn't a problem. You try that now, they'll lock you up. So it's all, it's all context specific. So other people have changed that and called it the warrior gene. They said, these are the war makers of the narcissistic psychopaths. And yes, probably, there probably is an evolutionary advantage in having in a tribe of 50, one or two of the guys there being a bit unhinged, uh, just in case there's a real problem and you throw them forward first, they probably would have been, uh, had a very high tolerance for risk, very high levels of aggression, being extremely delusional. Like they thought they would conquer in every, in every battle, which you should be if you're running into battle because you have a better chance of surviving if you do. So yes, it, it couldn't have been incidental in that way. Yeah. How long would you have to have a conversation with someone before identifying them, or would you be able to identify them as a narcissist? Um, I mean, yes. you, you, you're, not, you're not really supposed to do it through a conversation. You need a qualified clinician uh, to give them questionnaires that they can't trick their way through under clinical conditions. Um, inside of an hour of, of me personally talking to somebody, I can see if they are mentally ill in a way that is going to be problematic inside of about 45 minutes to an hour. You can tell, you can tell if people are open to new concepts, if they're capable of listening. Um, I believe that you can probably tell the rate at which people are processing thoughts to a degree, or you can intuit it. Um, so yeah, about 45 minutes to an hour to know if somebody had this serious mental health issue that was going to make communication difficult, but narcissism. For I'm very rarely in my personal life do I look at people and go, "Oh, that person's that person's a narcissist." Because if I let myself do that once, I think I'd probably go crazy. Yeah, I remember reading in the Psychopath Test, John Ronson's book. Uh, he said that he became a bit sort of addicted as a as a layperson. You really, it's really quite an addictive thing to go around pointing, going, "Well, he's definitely one. He's one." And as soon as I read that, I started doing the same thing. Always aware that I was being ridiculous. But thinking, yeah. oh God, oh, I wonder who's a narcissist in my life. It must, I mean, it's tempting, isn't it? That kind of, we like to put people in boxes, I suppose. We, we like to put people in boxes. And I think there's this kind of like a parlor game element to it. It's like, who's, 
who done it? Who's the murderer? Um, who's the narcissist in any group? Um, I just, I, I've really avoided doing that because, um, I just think it would, I just think it would do irredeemable damage to my ability to have relationships with people. So really when I'm off, when I'm not working, uh, I really switch off. Like I just don't, I just don't think about that stuff at yeah. all. Perhaps to my detriment, that's probably gotten me into trouble with people because I'm just off. <laughs> what about like celebrities that you look at? It must be, you must be tempted. A lot of people talk about, uh, someone like Meghan Markle, someone like Tom Cruise. They get talked about a lot as potentially, you know, on online and stuff. Have, have you thought about them? Yes, I, I, I do sometimes, you know, um, I watched, uh, Tom Cruise thanking people on an Instagram video yesterday for attending, uh, the Top Gun movie. And then he parachuted backwards of a plane, um, and continued talking during the parachute jump with the special mic he had on. It was really impressive. Wow. And I, and I was thinking, what, you know, he's been doing that kind of stuff for years. I, and I was thinking, what makes him tick? And if you see him receive like his gold medallion at the, uh, Dianetics club, what's the other word for Dianetics? Uh, Scientology. Thank you, Scientology. Uh, the Scientology. Yeah. Have you seen him receive his gold medallion from Scientology? I've seen pictures of that when he's got the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you just saying, well, what must it be like for any of them who became stars at such a young age? And then they maintain, like he's maintained, he's had a good career. He's maintained a level of success. Like he's one of the all time Hollywood greats. Um, and so you would, I would like, I would be weird. I would be very strange. Like if, if, if I lived, I mean, from the age, I think he was one of his first major roles. He was like 18 or 19. How weird would you be? If the world knew your face at 18 or 19 and you had just act, unlimited access to money, sex, drugs, every vice you can think of, it doesn't matter. People are going to protect you because you're such a high value asset. That level of fame, I, I, I'm not surprised that people like that become strange. And I've never seen anything that makes me think he's particularly uh, predatory. Um, Meghan Markle, on the other hand, yeah, it just seems <laughs> to live. Well, I, I would just look on the face of it. I would just look. I would, I, I, I'm not going to say narcissist, psychopath, borderline, but I would say, um, you know, parasite. Um, and I would say highly manipulative. She's entered, uh, a foreign territory, literally and figuratively and gouged something out of that territory, taken it away to another place and is now feeding on it. So. It's, she's a, she's absolutely, the actions itself are exploitative and parasitical. And you look at poor, poor Harold there. He doesn't look like a strong, healthy, happy, masculine, assinated man. You know, he's a fluttering little nitwit at this point. It's not, not um, very smart. He, so the, Im I, the impression I, the impression I get is he's not very smart. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, perhaps, you know, perhaps inbreeding isn't a really good way of isn't really good policy for perpetrating <laughs> smart royals. Um, no, I, I never thought of him as being particularly dim-witted until I watched 10 minutes of, which was all I could stomach of their Netflix show. And I thought, wow, he's pretty stupid, actually. He's a pretty stupid man. Um, but yeah, that, that I would say at the very least, I can't say narcissist codependent, but I can say, yes, that bears the hallmarkings of a, of an abusive relationship. Sure. Interesting. So, cause Megan. She's, I suppose what I was talking about at the start, I guess, what in my mind, it's these narcissists 
who think they're doing good and doing right. I listened uh, again as, as much as I could stomach to, to her audio podcast uh, where she interviewed Serena Williams. And I was just blown away by line after line because Serena Williams is one of the most respected, uh, incredible people. You know, I, everyone seems to respect Serena Williams for what she's done, what she's accomplished in tennis and all that stuff. And Serena kept putting herself on, sorry, uh, Megan kept putting herself on the same level. She was going, you know, people like us and the things we've done and people, why don't people like um, ambitious people like us? And I was just thinking, like, well, everyone likes Serena Williams' ambition, but what is your ambition, Megan? She didn't state her, she didn't state what her ambition was. And, and I think, again, you could, one could say that's quite narcissistic. Serena Williams has endured a militaristic samurai level of practice since she was a child. And now at the end of like year, decades of that, she's really good at doing a thing. What's Meghan Markle good at doing? What's what, what her practice? What, what does she practice that? Stealing royals. It was a, it was a Stealing royals mummy, pre-existing mummy issues. <laughs> well, yeah. I, was, well, I was listening just going, I was waiting for the moment where she just, I, I find it so slippery because I just want her to state what it is, her ambition, because all she talks about the whole episode was ambition and why women aren't allowed to have ambition. Women like her and Serena can't have ambition and people don't like them having ambition. I just wanted her once to say what her ambition was, because as you say, it just seemed to be becoming a princess, which doesn't seem to be a feminist ideal. And again, people said to me when I've said this before, well, well you're a man, you shouldn't say what a feminist ideal is. Well, fair enough, but plenty of women will also say that becoming a princess is not really an ideal. Yeah, I mean, she is ambitious, that's for sure. She, who doesn't want Serena Williams to do good? I've never heard anybody say, get, you know, get rid of Serena Williams, get her out of, the, of women's tennis. I, all I hear is support and praise, which is, as far as I know, all she deserves. All she's done is work really hard, and now she's an amazing athlete, and fairly positive, it seems. No, for her to compare herself to Serena Williams is, is, is insane. I mean, it's, it's completely yeah. ludicrous. It's a kind of reverse appropriation. She's, yeah, well, so, actually, yes, yeah, she's appropriating Serena Williams' virtue, but she's also colonizing Serena Williams with her victimhood complex. Like, we're both victims of the same conspiracy. No, no, you're not. You're not. Nobody's a victim of, of a conspiracy yet. People don't like you because you're not likable. The royals didn't like, the royals, I'm sure, are a weird bunch. I'm sure it's not easy to go hang out and have tea at their house. But if they didn't like her, it's because she's not likable. Yeah. Well, I, I hope anyone, if anyone tuned in when Richard was just saying, uh, people don't like you because you're not likable, he was just talking about Megan, just so anyone knows. If you're just, not about me, uh, in, case, cause it, it, in case anyone popped in at that second. My, my analysis of you, Andrew, is you are not likable. <laughs> <laughs> in case anyone got in and thought, oh, we're, this is juicy. I've just stumbled yeah, in on a fight what, here. What, what's going on here? Settle down, yeah. boys. The thing about you, Andrew, is you're not likable, and that's why the Queen doesn't like you anymore. All right? So that's it. So No, I, th I think so Megan make, would say or do anything to position herself in, um, in a role where she got attention, and, and she doesn't have anything. Like, she's not... She was, she's a nice looking girl. Uh, she was an actress, sort of, for a bit. I thought it is with royals and American actresses. Isn't she the third or the fourth royal? And yeah, in the last 150 years, 
sorry, she's the third or the fourth American actress who's to managed to gouge one of the royals out of the royal family. But um, interesting. Yeah, she's not. You know, she's not gifted in any way, so she has to move to victim mode. She has to lay claim to mm. uh, claims of victim mode, which I've not heard any that sound particularly legitimate uh, to me. I've not heard anything that sounds like a, a legitimate claim to victimhood. Anything outside of what anybody else would receive, trying to move in with a family full of weird toffs. Yeah. They're probably yeah. not that friendly. They're probably not very down to earth. This well, is the annoying okay, thing because I, I, I know people, them then. people will leave comments because they do and they'll say two things. One is they'll say, oh, it's because of, uh, because she's black, right? And, and I would just say, and I know I get in trouble when I say this, I swear to God, I didn't realize she was black un until no, I didn't. relatively recently. Did. Right. No, we, we can say this as, as I think it's because we're English, like, um, it's, it's just different here. In America, they're like, of course she knew she was black. I did not know that she was black. I had no idea. Well, I lived in I lived in Latin America for eight years, and she could easily be Latina. And yes. I, I grew up in a Jewish family as well in England. Just Jew, and, and a lot yep. of she could easily pass as Jewish or something as well. Yeah, or, or, yep. or, or just white. And 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 that's not yep. you know the fact that we're even sitting here discussing what someone's skin color is is, is not the ideal situation. But she sort of started well, that. Well, and we, I just find we, that we preposterous. Yeah, we don't do that. Like as as Brits, we we don't we don't do that, and so we're being judged by American neurosis and by, by the American level of psychosis. It's not, it doesn't matter how many times you say this to Americans, they won't hear it. It is not and had never been the issue in this country that it is over there. I'm not saying it's a racism free utopia. That's a different claim and what I'm not making, but we don't have the same issues. And no, I have no idea. I think I was, I think I'd heard her name a couple of years and then somebody said, the uh, black American actress, I went, who? It was so If nobody, it never occurred to me to guess, but had you asked me to guess, I would say maybe, maybe Dominican or maybe she's like, like you said, Latin American or no one cares. Who cares? Who cares? Or Spanish? I don't know. Yeah, it didn't matter. So that's the first thing. So anyone who's going to, and I know people will comment that anyway, because they won't listen to the full thing and they'll just hear us talking about Megan in the beginning. They will comment that anyway, always because of that. And I think those are the people <laughs> with a race issue because they're obsessed. And then the second yeah. thing that they'll always say, which you've already addressed, is like, oh, you, so you think the royal family's perfect, do you? And it's like, no, no, but that's not the point. It's just that I wouldn't marry the royal family. But she chose no. to do that. You know, She's made a concerted effort and she stated her purpose. She stated her ambition before she began with him that she wanted entrance into the royal family. She pushed and pulled and manipulated her way in there with rigid determination, got inside the castle, as it were, and then whinged that it was a bit cold and a bit windy in there. What did you think it would be like, my loss? She never had any intention of being a royal, never had any intention of staying. This was her way of getting into the limelight. And I think the problem that they're both going to find in the next year is no one cares. No one cares. There's no reason to care. If you're looking at victimhood, if you're looking at controversy, if you're looking at a fascinating couple with something to say, they're blown out of the water by other people, other issues and other things that are going on. I really think, and I'm going to take great satisfaction in this, karma is going to bite them in the ass and they will slip away as they probably already are into a state of indifference. Nobody's going to care that the race issue, the female issue, the royal issue, 
who cares? There's a war on, there's energy prices all over the place. No one cares about you, Megan. Boo-hoo. Well, people do like to sort of join in gossiping about them. They want to hear gossip stuff about them because they're so fed up with them. I think they just don't want to listen to them. Because I'm, yeah, if, I'm on YouTube, if I see a new... If I see a clip and someone's like, oh, the, one, of the, one of the reasons Megan this or that, or Harry's an idiot because of this or that, I'll click that. But that documentary on Netflix, I've gone past it about 50 times thinking I can't think of any more boring people than them to actually yeah. listen to. I mean, there is just... I lied before when I said I got through 10 minutes. I think I, I didn't want to sound like I had ADHD. I think I did four. And I think by the 10... Obviously, in the beginning, they're going to cut out the most powerful statements. And, and what is it? I think it's called a cold open, whatever it is, to lure you in. They're like, oh, I want to know the context for these controversial statements. Just insipid, trite aphorism after insipid, trite aphorism. Had a, a, a comedian written those lines, I would have believed it more. You know, Harry whinging about this, Megan offering some philosophical, whimsical insight into grief. And I'm not listening to it's I'll be dead one day. I don't have time for this. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Is that narcissism then? Is she, is she just a narcissist? I can't say that she has narcissistic personality disorder. I can say that she's a fairly standard issue millennial. Sorry, but, but <laughs> I told you I'm becoming a middle-aged curmudgeon. There is a type of there is, so when I say millennial, I'm not condemning all people of a certain generation, but it is known that there was a cultural shift and, and not everyone within that age group went along with it, but many people within that age group developed a kind of narcissism light and a sort of a low grade narcissism, um, and became very self-focused and very fame focused. And I, I taught those kids, I taught those kids when they were in school. So when I was 25, I was teaching 27, I was teaching 15, 16 and 17 year olds. So I knew what was coming. This was back in, um, 2005, 2006, 2007, I was working in the British education system. I knew what was coming and she's that age. She's Megan, Megan Markle is that age. They, they literally, when you said to them, what do you want to be when you grow up? The majority were saying, I want to be famous. And I was like, for what? Like as, as a serial killer, as a committer of genocide, like what, for what? And it was just, they, they consumed so much reality TV, so much of the Kardashians, so much of Big Brother, these music shows, uh, whether, you know, Britain's got talent and the talent shows, oh, yeah. and you hear the backstory and the sadness and the victimhood, and then that's supposed to affect your listening to how well they can sing or dance. It ruined, it shrambled kids' brains. And I think. Does she have narcissistic personality disorder or is she just a standard issue wannabe model actress of a generation who, who was determined enough or lucky enough to get herself in a position where she got intimate access to Harry? I mean, she is a good looking girl. If she said the right words to him, if she was smart enough to say the right words to him and give him the right level of, of, of physical intimacy, yes, yeah, it's, it's easy to see how she could pull him in. And make him feel heard and understood. I'm so sorry you're the younger brother. You'll never be king. Everybody sees you as a kid. I don't know my loves. You know, it, it's the game that she must have won on him would have been textbook. Um, but I, I can't sit here and say, hey, that's narcissistic personality disorder. I can just say it's highly exploitative and highly narcissistic. 
I've seen you've done a video on word salad, and I want to read you some word salad, and I'm going to do the accent of the person who it is, and because I'm not a great impressionist, but I'll, you might you might see, and and I will get what what you think afterwards. Okay, so when I look at religious epistemology cross culturally, I see a bipartite structure at the bottom of the hypothesizer. There's an idea that there's a material substrate that consists of a kind of latent potential that might be one way of looking at it, and there's the action of forming process on top of that. And it looks to me like it's something like what you would call an intuitive apprehension of the relation between consciousness and the rise of complexity of living forms. Does that words would that be word salad? Well, well, it depends on what you mean by word salad, Bucko. I mean, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that's, Bucko. that's gibberish. That's, that's, it's, Bucko. that's okay. total, total gibberish, total gibberish. Yeah. Um, so you, you caught on and that was Jordan Peterson. And I'm so happy about that because, um, I'm not a good impressionist, but I, I for some reason I can just about do him. <laughs> no, it was that. It's good. It was good. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that really is, that's dreadful word salad. To, to be fair, and I, I'm going to say something that everybody says, and. I'm not a huge fan of Jordan Peterson. When it comes to issues of psychology, he genuinely is very good. He genuinely is yeah, very insightful. I think, I think so. Relationship psychology, overcoming trauma, the early days, Jordan Peterson, like his first albums, 2015, 2016, <laughs> combining myth, Greek mythology, Christian mythology, um, great. When he tries to do politics, economics, and it sounded like he was trying to do philosophy there, continental philosophy there. He was talking to Dawkins. And I think there was a, there was a level of trying to, and he, he was misguided because Dawkins is so no nonsense. So he was trying to up his words and things, I think maybe to impress Dawkins. I don't know. Was, so is this on Jordan Peterson's channel where he's interviewing Dawkins and Dawkins is trying to get away and go to the lecture. Yes. Yes. It, the, the, I do not know why Jordan Peterson released that. I don't know. It's awful. It sounds like he's on drugs. He really sounds high. And Dawkins is saying, Jordan, Jordan, I have to go. I have to go. I have another appointment. Well, just wonder if the name, the same with the substrate of the vertical bubble bus. And you think, Jordan, <laughs> let the man go and do his job. What are you doing? Yeah, no, it was um, Richard Dawkins and Jordan Peterson are not. It's such a shame. I don't because I don't want to. I don't want to be that guy. Jordan Peterson deserves a certain amount of credit, but he gets too much credit, and he is very grandiose, very grandiose, and very prone to fall in love with his own images reflected back by his fans. You know, the Dawkins interview was a bloody car crash, and then we get these weird videos like. Um, a message to the Muslims, and I'm thinking, oh, mate, God. settle, settle down. Like, you know, like the, the Muslims don't need you to give them a little lesson on how Jordan Peterson thinks you should be doing Islam better. Um, so yeah, he's, he's, I, I would go so far as to say that in his case, I do think he's significantly mentally ill and very grandiose, very, very grandiose. Interesting. Cause you didn't want to go that far for. Megan or Tom Cruise, but with Jordan Peterson, you'll say you, you will. I've listened to more of Jordan Peterson and I've followed him over the years and the cycles that he goes through, um, the drug use, the specific drugs he was taking and combining and how he lied afterwards about the drugs he was and wasn't taking. He's, I'll, I'll, I'll drop this here. 
on, on this channel. He told everybody he was addicted to benzos and that, that the only problem was that, that it was benzo. Now the particular benzo, the specific one that he took, I had insomnia and somebody gave me half of one that I took and it ruined my life for a week. They were very powerful, but what Jordan is not saying is that he was also taking them with Ritalin. So he was taking an upper and a downer at the same time. That's why he got so sick. That's why he got so sick. This is, I, I can't prove that, but there are podcasts where he intimates that's what he's doing. And I can even reference podcasts where he surges high and you can hear him cover up on the Ritalin and then he goes into a little K-hole and bends. Wow. Yeah. So that's what's going on. That's why he's so different. Because also, I mean, the other thing I picked up, I guess with Dawkins, he was tr using a higher register. Because usually for a lay person like me, he's very easy to understand, which is one of the marks of his, I, I would call it, well, I don't want to call it genius, but what, what is so good about him or what is so watchable about him. But when he yeah. spoke to Dawkins, the higher register came out. And then the same thing happened when he talked to Stephen Fry. This huge register suddenly came out, and I was like, "I'm not, I'm not following this." And Stephen Fry is so good at speaking to people in a way that they can understand, and I think yeah. he was following Peterson, but no one else was. And it was like, I guess it was he wanted to impress those people, which in a way is endearing, isn't it? It is endearing, and he's boyish in that way, and that's why when I say these things, I'm, I I don't want rid of Jordan Peterson. I, I hope he stays with us. I hope he stays healthy. I hope he goes to therapy. And he is a lover of Britain and he's a fanboy of British intellectuals and it shines through sometimes. He really loves Brits and British intellectuals are on a pedestal for him. And you can hear he becomes a student. He's a fawning student in front of a lecture and he just wants Stephen Fry and, and Richard Dawkins with their posh English accents to pat him on the head because he was a Monty Python lover when he was a kid. That's, that's. Yeah, I think so. What's, <laughs> and what, why is word salad a marker of a, a narcissist? Um, it's a good way of, uh, taking a conversation where you want it to go. Um, and, and, and that sounded like Jordan Peterson was using word salad with Richard Dawkins as a narcissist. I, I don't think he was. I think he just was trying to impress it. But as a, as a form of narcissistic abuse, Word salad is a way of um, avoiding responsibility when you're being caught. It's a way of reframing a situation that changes the power dynamic. It's a way of denying and deflecting responsibility and putting it back on the person who's accusing you. Word salad is a, is a pretty effective tool of, of keeping people off your back, uh, defensively speaking. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and we, we should, I think we're both saying that we do like the guy and we have to say that because there is an army of, of JP fans who are get, like I was saying with Megan, who will be very quick to comment and go, oh, well, what have you done? Why do you, and it's like, no, we said we do like the guy, you, you, you're right. We're just sort of having a nice chat about him. So yeah, it's know. well, and, and it's, um, there's a rigidity there. There's a, there's a sort of a rigidity and there's a, there's a religious fervor that goes with that, which there shouldn't be. There's, nobody should attack. Nobody needs to defend Jordan Peterson. Nobody needs to. He's, he's absolutely fine. Just let it be. Yeah. It's okay. If people say something that's critical of him, there's no need to get triggered. And if you are becoming triggered, that's a therapeutic issue that you need to deal with. You don't know the man. He's not going to give you a pat on the back. He's not going to give you a biscuit. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't let it ruin your day. And we're not even having a go at him. Really? No, exactly. So I, I find him like in terms of watching, like I, there's no one else who, when he suddenly comes on the TV that I, I can't help but watch. And especially when, cause he gets very emotional. 
he was on Piers Morgan recently and he started crying uh, and he cried about Pinocchio and stuff. When he gets that emotional and he stopped, he takes those, those gaps between words. I just can't. Mm. There's no one I will watch like that. Do you know what I mean? I think, I think Jordan on his best day um, is one of the greatest public speakers we have live in the world today on his best day. On his worst day, it's, it's, it's chaos. It's, it's a little bit of a mess. And I think we're looking at somebody who's addicted. We're looking at somebody who's addicted to the limelight. He's addicted to the feedback he's getting from people. He releases too much. Um, some of the stuff is not edited properly. Some of the stuff is not well thought through. He's not always in the right mood for it. He knows he's emotionally labile, um, which is why people who are emotionally labile, emotionally dysregulated, tends to end up using um, drugs or alcohol to moderate those emotions. So it, it's one of those situations where brilliant, but, but flawed and, and damaged. And yeah, as we say, like, I, I hope, I really hope he sticks around. And I think he has a good core message. He has a very, very good core message that doesn't absolve him from the fact that he says and does things sometimes that are utterly ridiculous and they detract from the core message because people will then conflate the message with the messenger. What do you think makes a good speaker? Cause I'm wondering, I think of Jordan Peterson, I think of like Barack Obama, they, they leave gaps in their words and it's a really confident thing to do because i would worry that someone would think i finished and would interrupt suddenly or something like that but they leave these huge gaps is that a big part of it uh, possibly um there's a there's another philosopher a speaker that i like uh slavoj zizek and and pearson and zizek did this debate and it was sort of a, a you know a sort of conflict style debate jordan pearson is the better public speaker um, Slavoj Zizek does leave gaps, but the content that Zizek was delivering per sentence was much better and, and much higher, but you wouldn't know it. So is it, so who's better then? Like if you, if you've got an amazing product, but you can't deliver it to anybody because nobody can know what you're doing, or you have a solid product, but you can deliver it to everybody who knows what you're doing, which is the winning strategy. Yeah. I think pause is a good, I think it's good to sit and think about your answer which is what he does. Um, people ask him a question and he, he seems to be actually thinking it through in that moment rather than just delivering Pat, um, you know, pre-formulated, uh, sort of answers, which usually are just a form of ideology if they're not full through. Richard, where do you want to send people YouTube channel? Um, they can find me on, on YouTube if they put in Richard Granite. You will find me there. I am there. Do please, everyone, do go. Uh, he's got Richard's got a hugely amazing channel, hugely popular channel. Uh, so please go, go check it out. Um, just you know, thank our guests for coming on by doing that. And Richard, thank you. That was wonderful. What a great chat that was, wasn't that great, Richard? I loved it. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Richard Grannon, for coming on the podcast. Please, everyone, do think about getting his book, The Cult, sorry, A Cult of One, not The Cult of One, A Cult of One, How to Deprogram Yourself from Narcissistic Abuse. So go get that. Support our brilliant guest. Go subscribe to his channel, Richard Grannon. Remember, we've got some big episodes coming up. Hope you're all doing well and keeping well and not in sort of narcissistic relationships and things. So I hope you're doing all right as New Year approaches or New Year's approaches. Big episodes coming up. I'll see you soon.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.